following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. And I would like to invite Scott Burgess up, who will be talking about what's saving his faith. everybody in um, online world. I'm really glad Scott asked me if I could, if I was willing to use this mic because I'm Italian and gay, so <laughs> I was afraid I would hit the mic. <laughs> Well, that's all you need to know about me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I want to start with a quote. Uh, it's from a book called Aristotle and Dante, Dive Deep into the Waters of the World. It's by Benjamin Alide uh, Signs. It's the second book in a series. Um, the first one was Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe. But this is from the second book. It says, I didn't used to like who I was. And now I just don't know who I am. But mostly I'm going to become, I'm becoming someone I don't know. I don't know who I'm going to become. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to cry right away. <laughs> um, I spent like six to seven hours just planning today. I'm a teacher. My name is Scott Burgess. For those of you who don't know me, my pronouns are he, him, his. Um, some things to know about me before we get going on this journey today is I'm a pastor's kid. That will explain a lot. Um, I'm, a, I'm a librarian, so I, I very value uh, quotes. And, um, oh, thanks, Penny. I hope there won't be that many tears. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's very different writing things and then saying them out loud, right? Like, you live in that space. Um, so I'm a librarian. I value books. I value quotes. Um, I'm an educator. My current job is I'm a tech guru for the district I work in where I teach adults, which is a lot. <laughs> um, I am a public speaker. That is a huge part of my job. Uh, this is a first run, so I'm sure I'll reflect and be like, oh, I could have done that better. But I, I, I live in that balance of having notes uh, so that I can stay on track, but also like not relying totally on the notes so I can be in this moment with us, right? Um, I spoke this year at a national conference to like 80 strangers, and this is a much more, even though I think there, I don't know how many people there are. I'm guessing around 80. I know a lot of you, and so it's a much safer space. Um, also, that was a lot of research-based and not as exciting as what we're talking about today. Um, I'm a late bloomer in life, and I'm obsessed with Beyonce. <laughs> yes. I was, like, debating, am I going to wear a Beyonce shirt, or am I going to wear, like, a Pride shirt? So I went for Pride. Um, that will not be the last time Beyonce is mentioned today, either. <laughs> So, 
Uh, I want to thank Scott for allowing me to share today um, because in many churches, um, a queer person coming up and, first of all, a queer person being part of a church actively is kind of blasphemous, but to come up and share <laughs> is a whole other level, and uh, I appreciate Scott and the leadership team creating a safe space for the Alphabet Mafia here at Artisan. <laughs> There's so many letters, it's just easier to say that. <laughs> I also want to um, just thank my husband, Don. Um, thanks for loving me in spite of myself and letting me love you and give my life to you. So, um, <laughs> emotions. I, I could break into Mariah Carey for you right now. <laughs> it would be a <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not, I'm not somebody that gets worried about sharing in front of people. I like to talk. That's why I became a teacher, to get paid to do something I enjoy. Um, but I am a little nervous that I may say something that isn't planned that is like a little PG-13. So I'm going, because I don't remember things that I'm, saying sometimes. Like, I present, and I'm alive and in the moment, and I'm like, ooh, that was a little off color. So um, I'm just going to give us a blanket warning that today might be a little PG-13. It, it's not the goal, but it might be. Um, and when I present, it's usually very fact-based. But today is uh, not fact-based. It is personal. It's from the heart. And I, I just ask that you listen today with an open mind and heart. And one more caveat is if my parents and or sister ever happen to hear this, I, I want them to know that I love them profusely and unendingly, and nothing said today is meant to harm or put them in a bad light. It's about my, my experience of how certain things happen. So some things you can expect today. Uh, you already saw there will be tears. Maybe you might even cry. Um, there will be some laughter. There's always been a little bit of that. Uh, there's going to be some real talk because it's important. And there will probably be some more questions than answers. I don't have all the answers, unfortunately. Uh, it's, I think, partially why I became a librarian, so I could find more answers and could get a little more research-based and, and know the truth as much as humanly possible. Um, there will be hope, and there will be some vulnerability. And lastly, as any great queer person would provide, there will be pop culture. <laughs> so, <laughs> what is saving my faith? I, was, uh, I think this, this series started like a year and a half ago. Is that about right? And um, at, when I heard it was being launched, I, I wondered if I would ever share. And I didn't know what I would actually want to talk about. There were so many things that were saving my faith. Um, my dogs, which I said I would never get. Um, <laughs> and you've heard us pray about them a thousand times. Um, <laughs> my husband, uh, answers to prayer, forgiveness, this church, hope, therapy, uh, Hades Town. <laughs> you haven't seen it. You must. Duh, musical theater. 
And, of course, Beyonce, saving my faith. Um, but that is not what I want to talk about today. That doesn't mean those things won't come up. But what I want to talk today about what is saving my faith is my queerness. It's scary to say that in a church. Like, I'm like, is the lightning coming down? Are the walls going to turn into flames? Um, a few weeks ago, I went and saw a movie called The Persian Version. Has anybody heard of this movie? Okay, a few of you. If you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend you see it. It's written and directed by an Iranian woman, which, how many films are written and directed by Iranian women? Very few. But as I was sitting in the theater, I became highly emotional because in the film they talk about the strength of silence, which is an idea rooted around not speaking about our pain because it can't hurt us if we don't talk about it. We get to control the narrative of our story by saying nothing. But in doing so, we leave others out and we don't really heal. I crave vulnerability. It is like the thing above anything else that I desire in my relationships. And yet I have an extremely difficult time being vulnerable with certain people. And I show people the sides of them I want them to see. I'm going to try to be really vulnerable today. <laughs> I was inspired by um, Mistress Isabel Brooks. If you don't know who that is, she was a season 15 RuPaul's Drag Race contestant. And uh, Taylor Swift, to think about my life in different eras. So, <laughs> we're gonna go on a little journey together. <laughs> I'm convinced that every uh, queer person has at least three eras, probably more, but there's at least three, and I'm going to take us through three eras today. So the first era I want to talk about, and I'm going to kind of like go through a lot of period of time very quickly, is the out-of-touch era, a.k.a. my straight era. <laughs> I had a straight era for a long time. <laughs> It was uh, until I was 33. And I know some of you are sitting there saying, what? He looks like he's only 33. How is that possible? <laughs> as I tell my students, don't have kids, you don't age as quickly. <laughs> I really do tell students that, because they're like, I thought you were 29 or 30. I said, no, I'm 45. It's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> I grew up in the church, as you heard. Our whole world was the church. Sorry, I need to take a drink of water from this behemoth. <laughs> I apologize. I know Scott would never do that, but uh, here, here we are. If I have to run off and pee, just, you know, it's going to be a Linda Richmond experience. Discuss amongst yourselves. Anybody remember Linda Richmond from... Okay, you're my people. You're a certain age. <laughs> so um, our whole world was the church in my life growing up. Uh, my parents worked for the church. I went to school in the church, literally, not figuratively. Um, all of our friends 
and all my parents' friends were part of the church. And I knew that I was different, but I didn't know that I was gay, because one thing you learn very early in many churches is that being gay is wrong, and you would go to hell uh, if you even thought about being gay. And then, like, there were social things, too, where, you know, I was living my own personal middle school hell. There was a boy, his name was Eric, and I remember him calling me a girl repeatedly over and over. And I knew I was, a, I was not a girl, even though we all know who runs the world. <laughs> Girls. <laughs> That's a Beyonce song, if you don't know. It's, it's always a great day for a Beyonce song. <laughs> but I, I definitely knew I was different from other boys. And around the age of 15, my parents were forced to leave the church that we had called home for my whole life. And that's a super formative time in anybody's life. Uh, you know, you're in the throes of um, puberty and uh, also trying to figure out who you are. And then middle school is just a whole vibe. It's ironic, I work in middle schools a lot now. Um, and we went from a church of about seven to 800 people to a church of about 40 people. And I was about to go to college during this time. I switched to high schools in my senior year. Do not recommend, zero stars. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was my life. And so like, there were not strong roots tied into anybody or anything. And I went to college and didn't have a lot of connections because I was living at home, which is probably not like the safest thing, but financially re responsible-ish. So, um, you know, I didn't really date anybody in college. I was not sure who I was. And then in my 20s, I was dating a lot of girls because as many people know, a gay guy is a straight girl's, like, magnet, right? Like, they're drawn to them like flies are to food. Like, <laughs> my husband jokes today. He's like, Scott, <laughs> he's like, you have several harems going on. <laughs> Which is true. I have multiple uh, groups of female friends that I like to hang out with. And, and I thought, like, getting married was going to be amazing. This isn't my notes, but I thought it was going to be amazing. I was like, my husband's going to go to musicals with me. He's going to hang out with all the females with me. We're going to be, like, have our whole, like, group. That is not who my husband is. It is, like, the antithesis of who he is. And um, surprise! <laughs> um, but uh, um, I had a lot of female friends, and so it was easy to date. And also, like, I was the black sheep in my family. My mom and dad uh, were good Christian people, and they got married when they were young, 18 and 21. My mom got married on the night of her senior prom. That's a way to celebrate. Um, <laughs> And my sister and her husband got married when they were 20 and 21. And, you know, I didn't even have my first kiss till I was 22. Uh, I told you I was a late bloomer. So at 24, I met Kylie from Canada. 
And I did what any self-respecting Christian would do. I proposed to her in six months' time because that's what we do, right? <laughs> we weren't even going to have lust in our eyes or our hearts. Uh, we didn't want to commit adultery anybody. So um, there was a certain situation that happened that was just kind of eye-opening. It was about two or three months after we got engaged, and Kylie came in and um, said to me, do these clothes look good? And now, background, Kylie was very insecure about her cankles, and she was wearing capri pants. And, you know, like, I, I mean, <laughs> decisions are made, right? <laughs> like, if you're insecure about something, you don't accentuate that part. Now, this should have been the sign right here that I was not straight, everybody. Because I know that most straight husbands would say, it looks great, honey. But no, I did not. I said, why would you want to wear that? It accentuates the thing you're insecure about. And she got mad at me, and I couldn't understand why. It was very eye-opening. <laughs> Um, so a month before we were supposed to get married, I went to Europe and I was like, I can't marry her. And it wasn't even because I had figured out I was gay. That didn't happen for a few more years. But it was because I knew something was not right between us. And so in Europe, I figured out I wasn't supposed to be married, which was four weeks before the wedding. And... I lived in that really difficult space of having to call it off but knowing it was the right decision. And, you know, a lot of things get weaponized in the church. People were telling me, you're not listening to God. How could you do this? And I'm like, I'm the one that has to live with this choice, nobody else. But it was, I was stripped of my responsibility in the church I was attending, my parents' church, because I was told nobody would be able to listen to me or receive from me. So some years passed, and now we're at the end of this era. I was 31. I met my ex online, and neither of us were out. And he <laughs> uh, was from the South and was a student at SU. And um, we met on Craigslist. Tinder wasn't around, everybody. It was, like, not a thing. Um, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know any queer people. And it was really scary, but also it became very unhealthily codependent. And um, after four months of knowing him, I was outed. And um, to my parents. <laughs> And my parents said to me, you will not continue this relationship. This is going to end. And I was living at my parents' house because I was going back for my second master's because I'm super geeky. And um, I didn't really say anything. I just kind of like shut down and was like, okay. And that continued. So that didn't really last because, you know, can't just shut off feelings like that. And it also really pushed me really farther into the closet. Um, we 
snuck around and we still had feelings for each other. And two and a half years after that, he acted weird and I figured out he was seeing somebody else. And my heart literally broke. Um, and so I came out to my friends and my family as bisexual because I thought it would be easier to swallow, and I, I didn't know who I was at that time. Um, and my friends were like, we already knew you were gay. And I'm like, it, it doesn't matter if you knew. I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> and, you know, coming from the background, I had come in and felt that being gay was the worst sin of all because it couldn't be fixed as easily as other sins. So I entered era number two, which was my Diana Ross era. <laughs> the I'm coming out era. And I thought it was going to be the best era of all. <laughs> um, but as I said, I didn't know any... I still didn't know any LGBTQAI plus people, and I felt really alone. And my family was not supportive of me coming out. Um, they wanted me to be healthy, but viewed pursuing this lifestyle as sinful. And it's really funny that we use the word lifestyle when it comes to queer people, because we don't ever say, like, the straight lifestyle. <laughs> or the Christian lifestyle. You know, it's always like this lifestyle, like you're uncomfortable, so it's a choice, right? Um, and I went into an extremely deep depression. Um, I could not function at work. I had very deep anguish. Um, Brene Brown describes anguish as an almost unbearable and traumatic swirl of shock incredulity, grief, and powerlessness. And at work, I would lay in my office in the back on the ground in a ball when I was supposed to be teaching because I could barely stand up. J.S. Park is a hospital chaplain on Instagram. Um, if you don't follow him, I highly recommend him. He said, depression is not a choice. It is a poison. It is a fog. It is a liar. It is a fall. It is a world gone terribly wrong. But one thing it is not, it is not your fault. But I didn't know that at the time. So six months later, I was on a dating app. I got off Craigslist, thank goodness. <laughs> and <laughs> this was also around the time of the Craigslist killer. So like, wow, like, what was I doing? Um, <laughs> there's so many things I could say, but I'll just leave it at that. And I met Don. And Don contacted me. And I was like, nope, you're too old. Swipe. And. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried to ignore him because he was a mature gentleman um, and I was just out and I was like I want somebody my own age 
but like two months later, after seeing the wonderful world of dating, uh, he reached out again, and I was like, ah, I'll give him a chance. And he congratulated me on coming out. And I said to him, why? Because I didn't feel like it was a joyful time or anything to congratulate. And, and he said, well, you made a big step. And I go, yeah, but look at all the chaos it's caused, this mess that's like behind me. And he's like, you're going to be fine. I have faith. He, he told his friends that he was my therapist at this time. And they would say, are you seeing anybody? And he goes, no, I'm talking to this guy, but I'm like his therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he kept saying to me, like, over time, he would say to me, like, you need to learn about queer culture. And I'm like, like, Sweet Brown. Anybody remember Sweet Brown? No, you are not my people anymore. <laughs> Sweet Brown was this viral video in, like, 2014, 2015, where she was, like, wearing a bonnet, and she's like, ain't nobody got time for that. Oh, now y'all remember Sweet Brown. Okay. <laughs> So, and that was like my response to him, like, I don't have time, like, the world's a better place, like, we're good. And so the following year we went to Disney World, and he was convinced that I was going to propose to him. He told his friends, they're like, he's like, we're going to get, he's going to ask me to marry him. And I was like, no, that is not happening on this trip. I, I don't want to burst your bubble, it doesn't mean we're never getting married, but uh, we are not at that point. And so... That was rough for him. But I wasn't ready. I had only been out for like a little over a year. And um, so Christmas time came, and I remember saying, like Don, had, Don and I had been dating for like a year and a half, and I remember saying, I had always gone to my sister's house. I was that uncle, like my nieces and nephew were my world, and like I would go on Christmas morning and watch them open presents, and we had Christmas brunch. And I remember saying to her, like, Don can come, and she's like, he can come later. And I said to her, um, well, that, I understand, like, it's kind of new still for you, and, but this is something we'll have to discuss, you know, in the future. And um, so over Christmas break, we went to the mall. We were super romantic, and we're, like, leaning over the banister. I said, you want to get married? And he goes, Sure. And that was how we proposed. Really romantic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we were in uh, like premarital counseling and uh, with a therapist, not from the church, a therapist. Um, and <laughs> I feel like that needs to be said. Uh, <laughs> and I had been seeing him since I came out. And Don and he agreed that it was best for me to just break the news to my parents that we were getting married by myself. And I was afraid because the previous experiences of telling my parents things had not gone very well. And my worst fears were truly realized. Um, I was told I was making the worst mistake of my life, and I was listening to the devil. And I'd reached out to talk to my sister and brother-in-law that we were engaged, and I told her that, and it was like a very very weird conversation. And they followed up saying that they had wanted to talk more. And I said, um, 
I, I'm willing to talk, but I, I don't want to come by myself. I think it's important somebody else is there. And they refused to meet with me. And on February 15th, I received a letter from my sister in my email telling me that they were cutting off contact. And if I tried to reach out to my nieces and nephew, they would get an order of protection against me. And obviously that threw me back into deep anguish and depression, and it broke my family. And there was a lot of blame tossed around, and I remember thinking, it would be easier if I'm no longer alive. Damn, these <laughs> tissues. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had no plan in place to end my life, but I very much came to understand how people can choose not to live anymore. And the after effects of those things really affected Don and my marriage. We had a lot of ups and downs over the next few years as I learned how to be married. Spoiler alert, it's not how the church tells you it's going to be. <laughs> It really required heavy work and commitment, not just trusting in God. And then, in 2020, right after we had come here for a few weeks, COVID happened. How many of you feel like you're a different person than you were before COVID? glad it's not just me. <laughs> As they said in High School Musical, we're all in this together. <laughs> Sorry, deep breath. <laughs> um, you might be the same person at your core, but there's a shift in a lot of us, right? Um, some of your beliefs or your priorities or your way of looking at the world around you changed somehow. I felt like I had an earthquake in my soul. I'm an extreme extrovert, which is why I don't mind getting up here and talking in front of you all. If there was enough time, I'd sit down with every one of you and tell you this story one-on-one, -on -one, but there's not. Um, and COVID felt so constricting to me. Remember I said Don was the antithesis of me? He was like, this is heaven. I don't ever want to leave the house. And I'm like, what world are you living in? This is not the same world I'm living in. So COVID changed things for us. Um, the first major change came in the form of my sister. It had been six years since I had received that letter. And we were going to spend some of our holidays together because we were in very tight bubbles. And then my parents began to take some vacations with us, which, that's wild. Some of you are like, ew, my parents on vacation with me? <laughs> but that was like an answer to prayer for us um, because we knew things were beginning to shift and we were seeing answers to prayer for things that we had prayed for for years. Also during that time, social justice became extremely important to me, and I realized I had not done enough growing in my 42 years, and I needed to do better, 
and I began reevaluating re almost every area of my life. I guess what I realized during the end of this era was that I was kind of like sleepwalking through life a little bit and hadn't been fully living and I didn't know who I was and who I wanted to be. I always tell the kids, someday when I grow up. And they're like, you are grown up. I said, I still have a lot of life left to live. So we're in the last era. It's the era I'm currently in. It's called the cozy era. It's a Beyonce song, if you don't know, OK? <laughs> this is also known as the level up era. So last summer, uh, after many, many years of waiting for a new Beyonce album, she released her album called Renaissance. And You Won't Break My Soul became a mantra. And I, you know, I, I was like feeling like I was having this whole renaissance of my being. And the, di the dictionary definition of a renaissance is a revival of or renewed interest in something. And for me, it was my queerness. There is a song, it, I told you it's the cozy era. It's, it's called Cozy, it's track two specifically, if you want to hear it. And there were lyrics that stuck up out to me. They are, you're a god small g, a superhero being. You're a hero. You survived all you've been through. Comfortable in my skin, cozy with who I am. I love myself, cozy. Now, as RuPaul and Scott Austin said a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I know this is the first time in history RuPaul and Scott Austin have been in the same sentence together. <laughs> Hopefully it won't be the last. Uh, he said, this is what RuPaul says, but Scott paraphrased it nicely. He says, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> I realized I didn't know how to be queer, and I wasn't leaning into who I was. They must have missed, they must have missed me when they were passing out the how to be queer agenda. Like the textbook. You know, that's part of the gay agenda, clearly. But it, it missed me. Um, <laughs> and I, I realized I didn't love myself. And so in the process of trying to figure out who I was, I almost blew up my marriage. And I want to apologize to my husband for the hurt I caused you in our marriage. You deserved better. And I am thankful you stuck by me, and we are getting stronger than ever. And we began couples therapy. And I realized that I had a lot of work to do on myself, so I also began individual therapy. Therapy is a lot of work. <laughs> it's like my part-time job right now. <laughs> Don's like, why do you go every week? I'm like, I have insurance, and it covers a lot. And also, like, there's a lot of things going on in here. And after six months of therapy, I have learned a few things. I've learned that shame in my life, both from others and towards myself, and the internalized homophobia from years of growing up in an environment 
that told me I was wrong for being my authentic self has harmed me. Michelle C. Clark says, how do you pick yourself back up again? Confidently, deliberately, decisively, without shame. You forgive yourself in full. You believe in your ability to break cycles that used to hold you hostage. You remember your mistakes will never define you. I learned I didn't break my family, that their value system broke our family. I learned I have had to grieve multiple losses, including time away from my nieces and nephew I will never get back, and that no one from our, either of our immediate families came to our wedding, and that some of the dreams I had for my life will never happen. But that is okay. In that book, Aristotle and Dante, there's a quote that says, maybe life is made of the things we never dreamed of. I learned I'm still a work in progress and truly hoping to become the best version of myself that I can be and not worry about what other people will think about my authentic self. I learned I hide certain parts of myself to make other people more comfortable, especially around straight men. I am working on this and never dim your light for others. There's a quote on Instagram that said, once you figured out you're gay, each year you level up to a gayer version of yourself. <laughs> Maybe I'm entering my gay superhero era. <laughs> okay, we're almost done. Thanks for going. I think I went a little long, but it's, it's important. And I may never get up here again, so. <laughs> Especially after many of the things I said today. <laughs> okay. So, some final thoughts. This is a little bit of history about me, but I hope that we can all take some things from it. I went to see The Holdovers last weekend with my parents. It's an excellent film. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. By the way, I feel like I need to put on Instagram all my pop culture references for you so that you can like look them up. There were two, thing, two things that stuck out for me in that film. One is, we never know what someone has gone, is going, or will go through. The other is a quote from Paul Giamatti's character, who's a history teacher. He says, your history doesn't have to dictate your destiny. I hope that every person in here, or online, hey, online people, can walk out of here or walk into the room knowing you are beautifully and wonderfully made just the way you are. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, I miss Mr. Rogers, said, you are a very special person. There's only one like you in the whole world. <laughs> Sorry. There's never been anyone exactly like you before, and there will never be again. Only you, and people can like you exactly as you are. I, we need to be careful with our vulnerability. It's not for everybody, but vulnerability is an important part of our survival. In Aristotle and Dante, there was a paragraph that said, every human being, each of us, is like a country. 
You can build walls around yourself to protect yourself, to keep others out. Never letting anybody in, never letting anybody see the beauty of the treasures you carry within. Building walls can lead to a sad and lonely existence, but we can also decide to give people visas and let them in so they can see for themselves all the wealth you have to offer. You can decide to let those who visit you see your pain and the courage it has taken you to survive. Letting other people in, letting them see your country, this is the key to happiness. We can help others love who God made them to be. Kaylin Dion says, encouraging someone to be entirely themselves is the loudest way to love them. Although my queerness is saving my faith, the bottom line is that loving who God made me to be is not only saving my life, but truly saving my faith. It has been an honor to share with you today. Thank you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.